Hello again, I'm Miriam Felton. Welcome to Yarn Stories Podcast. Let's start today off with a bit of housekeeping. Yarn Stories is now listed on Stitcher and Google Play as well as iTunes. I've got it submitted to Spotify, but I haven't heard back yet from them. Uh, If you have a particular place that you'd like to see it listed, send me a tweet or a PM or whatever and let me know. That would be great. Thanks. Today's episode begins with an interview with Jennifer Tepper Heverly of Spirit Trail Fiberworks. Spirit Trail focuses on luxury fibers like merino, cashmere, silk, and some really great breed specific yarns in an extensive range of bases. Her studio in the Blue Ridge Mountains in Virginia gives her a never ending cycle of color inspiration that she takes into her life via yarn, fiber, silk scarves, and her new pursuit painting. I first met Jennifer on the internet way back in the day, probably 10 years ago. She was super supportive when I was publishing Twist and Knit and provided fiber for the handspun version of the Loon Shawl. Her business is very conscious of where the fiber comes from, including her non-shrink wool, which is an entirely organic process that's different than the stripping or coating processes that traditional superwash wool goes through. Let's just head right into the interview with Jennifer, shall we? I'm here with Jennifer Tepper Heverly, owner and sole dyer of Spirit Trail Fiberworks in Rappahannock County, Virginia, right? That's correct. Sweet. Hi. Hi. So you have a really large range of bases with luscious content like merino, cashmere, and bombic silk, or like Targi and Polworth and Blueface Lester. So do you have those milled for you? Some of them I do, yeah. Actually, the merino cashmere silk ones are all milled for me. Mm-hmm. The other ones are relatively standard bases that just about anybody can get. Yeah. What's the process been like getting specific things milled for you? Well, years ago, I, there was a merino cashmere nylon base out that a couple of the mills had. I liked it. I used it for a little while. And I thought, you know, with everything that I've read, silk is just as strong, if not stronger, than nylon. Mm-hmm. So I emailed the mill and said, can you do me a merino cashmere silk base instead of nylon, you know, in, in this percentages between the blends. Um, and they said, yeah, we think we can do that. And, uh, so they did a test run and Suna was the first one that I had done the fingering weight. Yeah. And, uh, and I loved it. Um, I loved the sheen. I loved how the silk doesn't really fuzz up Mm -mm, like I found nylon to do. Sometimes it just was wonderful. So I went from there and added the DK and the worsted weight, Virta Mm -hmm. and Verdande. And then I added the the heavyweight, the heavy lace weight, light fingering Nona. And then Mm I kind of pumped up the the merino and cashmere in that blend because it's not really a hard wearing base. Yeah. So I figured it it would be okay with a higher percentage of the luxury fibers. That's fair. Well, so yeah. that's really interesting. So t- did you do it because you were trying to like make it more luxurious or just make it more natural? Well, I kind of a combination. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I really like natural fibers. I'm all about protein fibers. That yeah. That's what I dye. I don't dye plant fibers. Yeah. And uh, I just wasn't crazy about nylon. Yeah, um, that's fair. And I thought, you know, silk is pretty awesome. And it worked out really well. That's yeah. great. Yeah. So your breed-specific yarns are really exciting to me. I love breed specificity. Do you find that the different breeds of wool take up dye differently? Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. 
So how, uh, give me examples. Well, like the Polworth, and it's I, it's a breed specific, but it does have silk in it, the Brigantia yeah. base that I have. Yeah. Sometimes that will dull the color down a bit yeah. versus 100% wool, like a super wash merino. Yeah, because it, it um, reflects, it takes up the dye differently, and then it also reflects light more, so yeah. it appears like like paler. Yeah, which you would think that, it, that especially the Polworth would be not that way because it's a blend of, it's got Lincoln long wool in it, which is a lustrous fiber. Yeah. Well, the silk would be that way. The silk would yeah, reflect yeah. more light back. Yeah. Yeah. So they definitely do. Some of them don't take it as evenly as others mm. either. They'll like, no matter what I, do, what I do, it kind of comes out a little splotchy. I don't really mind well, kettle it. kettle dyed. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's all. I do kettle dyeing and I do other ways of dyeing, and, but I don't do anything that's 100% solid because I like nuances in my colors. <laughs> yeah. I think it gives more depth <laughs> to the knitted fabric, so... Well, and it makes it much more interesting to knit, yeah. you know, to watch the subtle variations show up yeah, exactly. under your needles. And it's handmade. Yeah. And so. handmade things should be handmade. Yeah. And I'm <laughs> definitely not a scientist, so. Yeah. yeah. So um, does do you change your dye process based on which which breeds you're using? Um, occasionally. Or is it more that it just comes out differently? It just will. There'll just be subtle differences between the different yarn bases. Okay. Um, and I name, they all are the same name. Um, I don't try and yeah. name every color something that would, I would make, my head would explode if I No, tried that would be that. crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, every time I put something online, I take a new picture because, you know, every dye lot is slightly different. Yeah. It's um, a handmade even, product. Even within the same um, base. Yeah. So, yeah. That makes sense. Uh, so with the breed specific, do you work specific or do you work directly with the farms for those a yarns? A couple of them I do. Um, and then a couple of them are those standard breeds yeah. that anything, anybody can get. Usually for the club yarns that I have, um, mm-hmm. I'll always try and throw in a special, um, some kind of special yarn in the club that isn't oh, available anywhere else. And yeah. that's usually direct from the farm. That's or, awesome. Like a couple of clubs I've gotten yarn from my friend Clara Parks. Um, mm-hmm. Some of her runs that she's had she's had enough extra that um i could buy it from her that's great yeah and all the herds are breed specific so yeah it's kind of yeah yeah so i try and do that with the club i can't really do it as well with bases that i repeat um just, be- yeah. just because the quantity is not all production yeah yeah the amount of yeah. <laughs> the amount of that you need yeah <laughs> you'd yeah. it would be a little harder to source yeah so a few of your yarns are listed as being 100% organic, non-shrink wool. Right. What specifically is that? So, and how is it different than superwash? It's um, basically superwash, but they don't call it superwash because it is not a one of the traditional superwash methods, which is either okay. coating it with a polymer or stripping yeah. it with acid. Um, yeah. I don't know specifically what the process is. I got all of the paperwork from the mill on it. It is a um, GOTS certified organic yeah. process of basically superwashing. I don't know how they do so it. So it's not destroying the environment <laughs> little no, by little no. by making it non-shrink. That's and cool. And it's basically guaranteed organic from being on the sheep um, yeah. all the way up until yeah. I get it. Not all of my dyes are organic, so I don't list it as yeah, organic. Yeah, so you can't list yeah. it as organic. But the yarn itself, it's got good karma because the sheep are happy and the process yeah. is, is... And the cool thing about it is it's non-shrink, it's machine washable, but it still really feels like wool. It doesn't have oh, that slippery kind of limp feeling yeah. that you sometimes get with Superwash. Um, that's really cool. Yeah, it's really they're really cool bases. I, I really love them. Awesome. You've got really great names for your bases. Uh, they're all names from mythology, Roman, Norse, Danish, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I have been a mythology geek since I was a little kid, mostly yes. Greek. <laughs> so um, I. Yeah. So since you were a kid, you've been interested? Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, what did you start with? What was your, your first introduction oh, to mythology? I had an elementary school English class, I think, that had a little section on Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. And I just was entranced by the stories. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they just were so cool. And just sort of entranced by this whole vision of a world that sort of lived with these stories being real. Yeah. You know, are pretty horrible. Uh, <laughs> and, and, or just like mean. Yeah. Um, mean you know, gods. Just, uh, yeah, really. You know, just like seriously, these gods are going to get that involved with, you know, people's lives and stuff. Come on. Yeah, it seems very, um, very strange to people who grew up like Anglo-Christian. Don't they have anything better to do? Yeah. You know, um, so I just I just was fascinated by it. Um, I took a I took a couple of, of mm-hmm. mythology classes in college. I majored in English lit. So it was kind of. An oh, nice. Easy, so it tied in. Easy thing for me to do. And, yeah. And I still have my my Greek mythology, you know, anthology, which is this huge book. It's. I think it's actually bigger than my Shakespeare book, which I also still have. Um, yeah, so when I started my business, I started thinking, what am I going to name all these yarns? And I have gone through a slew of bases that I don't carry anymore. So yeah. originally, all the names were based on goddesses that had something to do with spinning, fiber, textiles, mm-hmm. you know, home, hearth, yeah. all that kind of stuff. But then and at some of, point, you run out of those. Run out of those. Yeah. <laughs> so it's been expanding, ever expanding. And then, you know, it's basically a goal of getting a name that sounds nice, that has some kind of a nice meaning behind it. It's not that hard to pronounce. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've named so many patterns after, uh, you know, mythological characters. And I get so many, like, how do you pronounce this? Or people are like, oh, I knit your something, something shawl. And I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Well, yeah, and I started doing a little designing, too. I did I did a shawl for Amy Herzog's Make Where Love Retreat this year, and I named it Beatha, mm-hmm. which is yeah. a Gaelic name. Um, yeah. And people, are, you know, laugh at me because, what do you have to pick that for? I'm like, you know, it's so hard to name a pattern because so many right. names are taken. Um, yeah. And I've kind of gone that route, too, with that because um, I'm, I'm just really into Celtic culture and stuff, too. So, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. So can you give us a rundown of the characters that you've named yarns after? Uh, pretty much. Like in your current lineup? Um, gosh, let's, you know. Here, I can pull up your website and prompt you. remember what the names are. There's so, been so many of them. Um, the Verdande and Berta and Suna are all basically Scandinavian goddesses. Okay. Um, that's, that's something that I don't know a lot of. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I like the, the sound of the words, um, but also, mm-hmm. you know, they all have acceptable meanings uh, behind them, yeah. too. But if you quiz me on what they mean right now, I probably won't remember. Um, oh, that's fine. You know, Brigantia is the version of Brigid, which is the Celtic goddess. Yeah. So Zalti is another one of the Scandinavians. So I have a new yarn coming out, which is a super bulky yarn. Mm-hmm. And I decided I was going to name it Chubby, but then I realized that that has some unsavory connotations to that word. Yeah. So I'm, yeah. I'm calling it Zaftig instead. Nice. Um, That's good. It's not a goddess, but it's just amazing chub. Well, it fits. It fits with the with the whole, you know, empowered women kind of feel right. of the names. Exactly. So yeah. when does that one come out? That one I'm hope I'm actually dying some today. Um, I'm hoping Ooh. to have an online shop update in probably around December 20th. And it's going to be okay. a, um, a single ply fingering weight, um, which I, is named Aurora. And yeah, a, I saw that. That's... This single ply is super chubby, zaftig. So yeah, it's that sounds really fun. It's an opposites attract shop update. Yeah. So yeah, this will probably come out after that, yeah. <laughs> so we can you know send people to your website yeah. to find it if it's still there. <laughs> yeah. 
So you play with color on yarn and you also play with color on canvas. You run a second Instagram account that showcases your paintings at Brilliant Color Passion. When did you start painting and how did you come to it? So I started painting in high school and college. I have a mine, actually a minor in fine art mm-hmm. and also a minor in philosophy because I couldn't decide what I wanted to do. And so I started painting in college. I did, I did ceramics and painting and color pencil and calligraphy and all kinds of stuff like those are all like color play yeah total (laughs) plays we get to play with color I'm all about color all the time yeah my dad is an architect he's an amazing artist so I grew up taking classes at the Smithsonian Institute with him um which was uh, really fun um because I I grew up in downtown Washington DC so we would go down there and take classes it was great um and then in high school and college and then when I graduated from college I went to work in commercial real estate in DC for 15 years so I didn't do actually anything creative during that time because I really didn't have any time I didn't I was gonna say I bet that sucks up all of your spare time yeah it was pretty crazy it was an intense intense schedule it was really exhausting yeah um I didn't even knit during that time I'd started knitting in high school and stopped knitting too and then when I got got pregnant after I got married um when my son was born I quit that career because I didn't want to have a live-in nanny, which was my really my only other option. Yeah. And at that point, I started knitting again, which that's how my business evolved. And then yeah. when I moved here into my studio in Sperryville, um, I actually finally had space that I realized one day, you know what, I could set up a little painting corner in here and start painting again. Nice. And so that's what I did earlier this year. I started painting, and I don't have enough. I don't have as much time to do it as I'd like to yet. But I yeah. did sell a painting in November, which was very exciting. That's um, great. Yeah. So. so how would you describe your painting style? I am definitely just playing with color. I would say probably yeah. abstract impressionism. Mm-hmm. I used to, when I was younger, try and paint things that looked like things. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I, but it's not what feeds your soul. I think a lot of artists probably start out that way when they're young, too. Um, and I realized yeah. this time around, I don't want to do that. I just want to like play with color on the canvas and see what 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 I create and what yeah. develops and it's a lot of fun. And it kind of gets me sense. out of the zone of my fairly rigid ways in dying and makes me expand. Yeah, I get that. I've been learning to watercolor and it's all color play for me as well. Watercolor, I love the way that like things blend or you know a heavier paint pushes into another one. Um, mm-hmm. but it's 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 good to have a hobby that still feeds the passion of your creative business. Yeah. You know, for me, I've got like, I've got the sewing. I'm incapable of having a hobby that stays a hobby. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, I I have been accused of such things as well. (laughs) I mean, I have to smack myself every once in a while and go, no, just do this for fun. You know, you don't have to like make a business out of it. Yeah. Yeah, Like I did some embroidery for some Christmas presents. And then I was like, I wonder if I could start selling some embroidery. Well, that's kind of why I'm dyeing silk scarves now, because I dyed some silk scarves for Christmas presents a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and everybody loved them. And I thought, oh, you know, I could sell those too. Yeah. So, well, and that's it. That ties in nicely. Like, it's not that far of a leap to you yeah. know, jump to the dyeing yeah. of silk scarves because you're already dyeing things. Yeah, you know? it's all the same equipment. Yeah. yeah. So you live in the Blue Ridge Mountains area in Virginia. I do. And they're famously beautiful. So how does the place that you live influence your dyeing and your painting? I think it's just a constant inspiration. Um, I mean, like I said, I grew up in downtown Washington, D.C. 
I'm a total city girl. Mm-hmm. My parents retired out here in the early 90s, and then my husband and I built our house out here yeah. in 2004. I, I really love being out here. It really is incredibly beautiful, but in a very quiet way. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not like the Rocky Mountains. Um, Where I live. <laughs> yeah. Which are just stunning. But they're almost, when, when I've been out in Colorado, they're sort of almost untouchable um, because yeah. they're so grand. Well, Colorado, um, like they're farther away when you're in like Denver or something true. than they are where I live. Yeah. <laughs> but they're, they're imposing. They're like, like, you know, you look at them and you're like, oh, yeah, I could totally die up there. Like if yeah. I got lost. Yeah. Well, and I, and people underestimate the Shenandoah National Park, too. It's huge. It's huge, but it doesn't seem so dangerous, I mm-hmm. guess, um, yeah. because it's so subtle, because the mountains are so worn down. Um, yeah. My kids like to inform people that they're really old mountains, you know, and they're older than the Rocky Mountains, and yep. they just got worn down, down yep. which is true. Yeah. Um, but they don't, you know, they're just kind of quiet and... Uh, you know, but every every day driving to my studio, every day driving home, I have these amazing mountain views. I have sunrises and sunsets, and mm-hmm. the colors are just incredible. Yeah. Um, the blue sky out here, the dark, the night sky. I mean, the stars are just unreal. Oh, um, I mean, the Milky Way is I see you know every every day. That's um, wonderful. That unless the moon is out, because the moon is so bright that yeah. it kind of blocks a lot of it out. But it's just, it's it's just stunning. You know, my kids yeah. just love it. They have grown up hiking in the Shenandoah. They go and, and hike on their own now. Mm-hmm. Um, they've camped out. You know, it's it's really a beautiful place to be. And it's only 90 minutes from D.C., so I can still yeah, get my city bad. fix and, and yeah. go into the city. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so do you, do you end up taking photos as, like, references for colors? Sometimes, yeah. And I do. I share, I tend to share a, a regular amount of, of scenery photos on my Instagram mm-hmm. account too, because I think, you know, it's just so beautiful out here. I want to share it with well, as many people as I can. Yeah. And if it's, if it's influencing what you're doing, then it's, it gives all of your yarns a sense of place. Yeah. Which yeah. is always better to have, you know, instead of dissociated yarns from, you know, where they came from. And that's actually, you know, the whole point of this podcast is to, yeah. to kind of place yarn in a, and fiber in a position where you understand where it comes from mm-hmm. and what influence it's making. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that for me living here, it's just, it's a daily scene of beauty that yeah. sometimes I, I take for granted, but I think it's always in my mind because it's always there. Like even walking outside my studio door, I'll get this glorious sunset yeah. and I can even, I can still see, I can see the Thornton Gap entrance to Shenandoah National Park from my studio too, oh, up on cool. the mountain. Yeah, it's really nice. cool. Yeah, and the trees changing in the fall, definitely. And, yeah. You know, even down to things like in the spring, I noticed a few years ago that, you know, when the buds start coming out on the trees, they're not actually green. No. They're peach and burgundy mm-hmm. and browns. And, and I've done a couple of colorways, you know, one called spring buds that was not green at all. Yeah. So I was talking to Hannah, uh, Hannah Thyssen, about about your colors and she called them amped up earthy which was perfect <laughs> um it's like someone took photos of nature and then turned up the saturation yeah that's probably, that's pretty good they're wonderful because <laughs> you. you know you've got you've got a good range i think of of you know things that are bright like not everything looks earthy you know you've got a really great color saturation yeah you know because a lot of a lot of like new hand dyers or you know a lot of I've seen a lot of hand dyed yarn that's just like it looks washed out because they didn't really use enough dye on the yarn and you know or didn't set it properly that kind of thing so I commend you for your lovely colors thank you 
it's definitely been an evolution. I actually will have people come and show me something they've knitted from yarn that they bought five or ten years ago, mm. and honestly, I don't even recognize it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, you sure that's my yarn? Yeah, um, that's fair. Sure that's my color? Uh, <laughs> because it, it evolved. You know, I'm always evolving. Yeah. Uh, yeah, with my colors. And, and you're right. It's it's Part of the art is knowing how much to put on um, mm. and how to make it stay. And um, yeah. yeah, sometimes they'll bleed. You know, yeah. I think every dyer will have yarn that bleeds no matter what you do. Yeah. Um, hopefully not too much, but some colors just actually I've realized that a lot of colors like to have a secondary exhaust after they've yeah. been dried. Yep. Um, and oftentimes I just don't have time to dry everything no, and that's wet it all down again and you know, yeah. dry it all over again. That would be yeah. a lot of work. Yeah. But that's what the, you know, washing and blocking is for. Yeah. You'll get that extra exhaust out. I do try. <laughs> Uh, so it seems like you you uh, work with some designers again and again. What do you think it is that keeps them coming back to your brand, to your yarns? I think you know, for a lot of uh, a lot of it, we just like each other. Yeah, um, that's fair. You know, we like working <laughs> together. Um, we have a good time. I love collaborating with designers. Mm. Um, and and recently, I've had a couple of projects where I've actually developed colors you know, based on what the designer wanted. Mm -hmm. Um, Emily Connell is one that I just did that with, um, with a colorway that I called Painted Hills. Um, Yeah. I think I actually bought, I got a skein of that at Rhinebeck from you to do something with. Kind of that goldish background with red red and purple and blue. Yes, it's so beautiful. um, You know, and I think too, I like to work with designers who I know create really good patterns Mm -hmm. um, too. Yeah. uh, Because I don't, I, I think, you know, designers wouldn't want to use my yarn if it was bad. Um, and I'm not, you know, I don't you know. There's, there's so many, there's hundreds and hundreds of great designers out there. And I would yeah. work with, you know, every single one of them. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, you know, the designers that I've worked with are, for the most part, designers that I've knitted projects of their patterns. Yeah. And, and so you know that their pattern writing skill is, is up to par, that you yeah. wouldn't be upset yeah. about, you know, getting the some email about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But it's really fun to do that. I like I like working with designers a lot. It's it's fun. I think that, you know, every every part of this process has its place and adds something to a finished product. That, you know, everybody has something to offer to the final thing. You know, the farmers are raising the sheep and you know, them taking care good care of their sheep means that the yarn is gonna be strong or, you know, sheep being maltreated or not taken care of or you know dehydrated it comes out in the wool oh absolutely i mean even down to sheep need to be raised for the wool sometimes over meat because what you shear is different yep you know if you're having if you're lambing versus you know and i know there are farmers um like uh foxfire yeah who's worked that out because i think she does both yeah um but yeah so I think everybody has something to give to the process and I love the way everything comes together to to mm-hmm. be this like innocuous skein in your hand that can spark so much joy. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And just even all the way all the way through to knitting something with a design that you love. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's not like it's not like anything that anybody else has even if you use the same pattern and the same yarn and the same color it's still not going to be quite the same yeah. as somebody else's sweater that uses all the same material because you made it yeah different yeah. hands yeah all the hands yeah. that touch it yeah so are there any new things or new colors that you're really excited about that that bulky yarn the bulky yarn yeah i'm looking forward to that i'm i just started playing with that today and it's fun because 
every time I get a new bass, there's a little bit of a learning curve on, okay, how is this bass going to take die, yeah. you know, and how do my methods work? And I just, I guess earlier this year or last year, I started doing some speckled yarns. Yeah. Um, so I'm speckling this fat bass right now. Oh, it's going to um, be so great. Which I, I can't wait to see how it turns out because um, so far it looks really cool. But the first batch of speckles that I put on, it was like, huh, okay then. Um, I'll have to adjust that a little bit because it, it came out more, um, not solid, but in bigger chunks yeah. than, than speckles. Yeah. Uh, so I have that. I mean, I'm always doing new colors. Yeah. Um, I actually, I was, I was, have been a very late convert to speckles because a lot of the early ones, I just, they were just too wild for me. It, yeah. it just wasn't, it didn't appeal to me because uh, that's just not the color that you I like. You don't necessarily want a rainbow on everything you touch. Right, right. But I started, um, <laughs> I started playing with them finally because I haven't really been able to do variegated yarns the way that I used to, the way that I did for years yeah. and years because I sort of hand painted myself into tendonitis in my elbow. Oh that, no! Um, flares it basically. I can feel it anytime I die that way. Yeah. So the speckles have allowed me to do a variegated yarn, but not in the same way. Yeah. So I tend to do. I like the subtler speckles. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of mine are, are a little bit more subtle. Well, and I like that. Like painted hills, it has this beautiful, interesting base color and then you have three colors of speckles on top of it like that's it it's not like you know seven different speckles and you know and a variegated base underneath like it feels like it pairs well with any of your other yarns yeah and that's what I try to do too is to create yarns that because I'm all I love doing color work projects yeah. too um that work well together that way yeah um, and I love using speckles in color work. It ends up looking like stained glass. Yeah, that's great. Just one solid color and one speckle. Yeah. Um, is really cool. Yeah. Are you yeah. using speckles primarily as like the background and then with a the solid color uh, or as no. the, as the like contrast? As the pattern. Yeah. yeah cool. As the pattern and the background is a solid color. That's cool. Yeah. That sounds real fun. Yeah. It's really fun. Um, I have some plans for that too. Excellent. For some, yeah, projects coming up. Yeah. I have this question that I ask everyone. Mm -hmm. um, what is your superpower? I think mine would definitely do with color. I, you know, I just think I see color more mm -hmm. uh, differently, and uh, and it certainly helps with what I do with my work. I know I play that hue hue game where you, you it mixes up all the little squares of color, mm -hmm. and you have to put them back in the in the right order. And I always game. beat the game. You know? <laughs> well done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you know, I think you know it's probably the way that I see color and and how I can translate it into you know my vision into something concrete yeah that's great that makes it you know makes it unique yeah, yeah. well I feel like um like your colors on your yarn are are interesting and they they you clearly had a direction you know what I mean you had a direction you were heading toward yeah like they they speak if that makes any sense yeah. Oh, that's good. Like you look I'm at glad. it and you're like, oh yeah, I totally get what that is. Like, you know what I mean? It doesn't yeah, feel well, like like you, you know, just threw some shit together and like stirred it in a pot. <laughs> it feels like you you had a vision and you made it happen. Oh, that's good. I started doing that. I do on my blog, try to do every Thursday, but it doesn't always work out. I do a color inspiration Thursday where oh, I'll nice. kind of, I'll do a picture, a, a collage of like a, a yarn color with pictures of what inspired it mm -hmm. kind of around it, sort of to show people where I, where I came from with colors. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, 
And that's fun. That's great. And it, and there's been times when I get color stuck in my head and it's it's like, oh my God, if I don't get this out onto yarn, I'm never going to like get this color out of my head. I hear you. Um, I've got a color yeah. stuck in my head, like a yarn, um, I, like an idea of a yarn for a particular piece that is inspired by these chairs in a local restaurant that I love, um, the ch- which sounds really <laughs> weird. Um, the chairs are, are copper. Oh, yeah. And they have really interesting intersecting lines and a really great geometry. And I've got a shawl in my brain. But like what I want yarn wise is like a copper, not metallic, but like copper colored base Mm -hmm. and then some speckles on top of it so it would make the knitting interesting but like i'm having a devil of a time trying to find it well you should like we should talk about that okay we can talk about that that'd be fun that'd be awesome yeah copper can be hard because it's really hard for it not to be too brown or too orange and anything that's metallic you know you're not going to get a metallic look no you won't get a shine a yarn that's yeah yeah, and that makes sense even 100 percent silk yarn it's still not going to be the same metallic shine Yeah, Yeah, I don't need it to be metallic. I just want it to, like, evoke the same feel as the copper. Anyway, so (laughs) this is where I'm at right now. Yeah, yeah, but it's kind of a pain, isn't it, when you get it stuck in your head and you're like, oh, yeah, I got to get this out of my head. I got to do something with it. I've been thinking about it every day for three weeks. Oh, man. You know, and I'm like, I keep looking, I keep, like, scrolling through Instagram obsessively, like, looking at these, you know, yarn dyers that, like, seeing if anybody already makes it, and I'm not finding it, and it's just, (laughs) so we will definitely talk about this. (laughs) Yeah, send me a picture. (laughs) Cool. I've got, yeah, Yeah. I've got the pictures all separated out. Um, Awesome. Well, thanks for talking to me. Thanks for asking me. It was fun. Thanks. Jennifer's Instagram account. The photos she's publishing are such pure and wonderful color play. I love seeing color through her eyes. You can also check out the new yarn she was talking about, Zaftig, the big luscious bulky, and Aurora, the single ply merino fingering weight. And Jennifer has generously given us a skein of Brigantia for this episode's drawing. It's an 8515 blend of Polworth wool and silk in a super large skein of 600 yards of DK weight. Speaking of Polworth wool, next I talked to Deb Robson about this breed and its really unique history. Deb is co-author of Fleece and Fiber Sourcebook. She also teaches breed-specific spinning classes at fiber festivals the world over. Oh, and you should totally check out her free craftsy class, Know Your Wool, that I'll link in the show notes. Hey, Deb, can you tell me about Polworth today? I could, yes. I think that a lot of people are familiar with Cormo wool. Mm-hmm. It's been, you know, kind of the hot fiber for a while. Yeah. And I will say that if people like Cormo, they're probably going to like Polworth. Okay. And even if they don't like Cormo, there's they a good chance like they're going to Yes, there's a good chance they're going to like Polworth. <laughs> they are they were developed at different times, both in Australia. Okay. Polworth was developed first. Um, and they both ended up through a variety of crossbreeding efforts as being about 75% merino and 25% long wool. Okay. So, so it's lengthening the merino, the staple of the merino, basically. It's lengthening the staple of the merino. It's opening out the crimp a little bit. Mm-hmm. Cormos have been very methodically narrowed to really precise fleece production. So it's super, super predictable. Okay. Polworth has a little bit wider profile, might be infinitesimally stronger. We're talking like a micron. Yeah. So when you say wider profile, you mean like that it varies more within the breed? 
Yeah, but not a lot. Okay. I mean, we're talking like maybe. Yeah, they still a, consider it as t- a distinctive breed, so it's still oh, it's definitely specific. It definitely, it's definitely a distinctive breed, no yeah. question. But you might have a, a five micron range rather than the Cormos two micron. Oh, okay. I mean, we're we're talking. Yeah, they're they're in the ballpark. Yeah. Paulworth is a little bit a uh, little bit bulkier. Mm-hmm. Possibly a little bit easier to handle. Okay. For those who are spinning. Yeah. I mean, it's like we're talking very, very fine slice and dice here. Yeah. And, you know, if you're if you're looking to be in that ballpark, um, you might find Polworth a little easier to handle. That makes sense. Yeah. So it was developed. Uh, basically, they started with Saxon Merino sheep from Tasmania. Now, Tasmania is an island off the coast of Australia. Mm-hmm. It is part of Australia. And that's where Cormo was developed later so Polworth started out about the 1880s and they started with merino rams and corydale ewes and corydales had been developed about 30 or so years earlier in new zealand yeah and that's where the longwell comes in through the corydale side okay there was a an estate i guess you'd call it called tarned warned court okay yeah (laughs) <laughs> they abbreviate it to Tarndy okay. in Victoria, Australia. And that's where the Polworth was developed. That's really they, specific. Like... It is very specific. It is very specific. <laughs> and there's some cool stuff that kind of comes down here because the family that has had Tarndy has had it for six generations. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're showing my age here in that when you t- <laughs> say Polworth to me, I immediately think of a woman named Wendy Dennis. Okay. Who produce produces, I would say produced, except that she's still there. Yeah. Very beautiful coated Paulworth fleeces mm-hmm. and marketed them very well to hand spinners. Okay. Now, she and her, uh, her husband are now, uh, have they've passed along the, the primary reins for Tarndy to their sons. Okay. So it's moved on to the next generation. Yes. And what I'm saying is I'm that I'm that other generation. Oh, that remembers her rather I than do. her son. I yeah. do. And they are doing a beautiful job still of yeah. producing these gorgeous fleeces. But Wendy Dennis was ahead of the curve. Okay. In terms of what she was doing with or what they were doing with breeding and with marketing. Yeah, directly to spinners instead of, you know, trying to, like, get a mill to buy all the Polworth and mill it into a specific yarn, like, talk directly to spinners who will then make it a commodity. Correct. And jacketing. Yeah. So um, for people who are not familiar, coating or jacketing a fleece means that you literally put a coat on the sheep. It keeps a lot of the vegetable batter out. It keeps the fleece cleaner, which means that you're going to get more yield and less crap in the fleece. Correct. Correct. Um, It makes a beautiful fleece. It makes a beautiful fleece as long as you change the jackets often enough. Because otherwise the fleece can felt under there. Mm -hmm. Jacketing also has some challenges in terms of risks to the animal because they can get their legs caught in them. They can get them caught on fences. You you can't jacket a large flock. Yeah, that makes sense. Actually, Tarndy has a fairly large flock to be doing this. Well, but you just have to be like on top of it. You'd have to have people like, you know, observing and watching the animals, make sure that they're not getting stuck. Yes, you have to be vigilant. Yeah. And you have to be careful. And uh, the Dennis's have done a fantastic job of that. That's great. And that's why Paulworth is known among those who have discovered it as 
a very beautiful, well-done hand-spinning police. Now, there are polwarts in other parts of the world. We do okay. have them in the U.S. Yeah. In South America and in, in the Falkland Islands, they are known as ideals. So oh, it's okay. the same breed, but it's got a different name. Yeah. <laughs> it's descriptive, too. Yeah. And the reason that they developed them at Tarndy was they had, they had these merinos. Mm-hmm. Merinos are really good in dry climates. Yeah. And Victoria is wet. <laughs> so they needed something that would do better in a wet climate. They did. And that's why they ended up breeding in some long wool there. That makes sense. Yeah. So there's a, actually a beautiful podcast. It's actually a video cast mm-hmm. that has interviews with Tom Dennis, who's one of the sons who's yeah. guiding Tarned Warren Court at this point. Mm-hmm. It's on the Fruity Knitting Podcast. It's F-R-U-I-T-Y. You can Google it or link to it. Yeah, I'll link um, to it in the show notes. It's episode 29. Okay. And it, it was just released in May 2017, so it's recent. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do a really nice job of going through the history oh, of, that's great. yeah, and and what it's taken to keep that place going through six generations. And there have been some times when it when it was really pretty darn iffy. Yeah. So did the Polworth then? The Polworth was developed there at Tarndy, or did they just do a better job marketing it? To they did it. Okay. It and is so there. it's spread yeah. from there. It is spread from there. Yes, since the, like, the 1880s. Wow, that's great. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting to have such a very specific history for the breed. Yeah, well, yes, it is. And it was one of the very early breeds that was developed as a dual-purpose breed. Oh, so it's meat and fleece. Yeah, and Corydale preceded it. Yeah. But not by that much. Okay, so they were kind of parallel timeline-wise. Well, the Corydale contributed to the Polworth. Oh, okay. Yeah. So anyway, they were they were really early in terms of, of that breeding effort. That's really great. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So what are the properties of the Polworth? It is it is good next to the skin. Mm-hmm. It tends to bulk up when you wash it. Okay. So That's if nice. you're yeah. If you have either yarn or you're spinning it, expect that it's going to bloom some. Mm-hmm. It co- oh it comes in Gorgeous colors. <laughs> oh, he's got color. They've still it's got color got in color. there. Yes. Oh, I love naturally colored yes. fleeces. Yeah, and you can get silvers and browns and, and, and all sorts of things. Yes, there's a wide range of colors. Ooh, and That's nice. And the folks at Tarndy have actually bred for that. Oh, that's great. Uh, so half their flock actually is colored. Well, that's, I think that seems like it's a, a property of how they've marketed it. You know what I mean? Like if, you, if they how they developed it. If they had developed it for, uh, you know, commercial milling purposes, mills want white fleece. Yes. But because they had, they built a market for the hand spinner, hand spinners want color. Yes, they do. That makes sense. Yes. That was um, a really great niche to fill right there. It is. Yeah. And, the, and they've done a, a absolutely fantastic and unique job. I mean, I don't know of any other breed that has this focused a history, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, the creative versatility from one generation to the next to see where the potential for their sheep is. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's really it's, great. Yeah, it's really pretty fascinating. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks, Deb. You're welcome. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great fiber. I find it splendid with silk a lot. That makes a lot of sense because it's fine enough. 
Yeah. It doesn't need it. No. <laughs> but then you get something really luxurious because you've got a breed-specific yarn, but with silk in it, and you're going to get, you know, it's going to add to the drape. It's going to add to the hand. Right. It has nice drape anyway, but yeah. yes. Yeah. And it would add a little shine to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it would be a really nice combination. It also blends really well with things like Angora. Oh, because um, it blooms and the Angora would bloom too, and you'd get really right. lofty, fluffy. And they're both soft. Uh-huh. Um, something like a fine mohair. Yeah. In other words, in other words, it it blends well with other luxury fibers. Now the challenge is the length because yeah. it actually is kind of long. Yeah. It tends to be longer than Cormo, so okay. it runs in the three to seven inch range. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, most of it's four to six, but yeah, that's it's it's got really nice length on it. Well, that would make sense with the silk then, because silk is however long you want to cut it. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that makes sense blend wise. Yes, absolutely. Awesome. So cool stuff. Thanks, Deb. You're welcome, Mary. I posted that video of Fruity Knitting Podcast in the show notes, as well as some pictures from Tarndwarn Court, the estate where Polworth was developed. You can see some adorable pics of colored Polworth sheep there. If you missed the history of Corydale in episode 101, I'm linking that in the show notes as well. I hope you had a great holiday season and a wonderful new year. I've got my goals and intentions set for 2018 and that this podcast is prominently featured in that list. I've really been enjoying the work and would love it if you would help support me in the coming year. This podcast requires a lot of time and equipment, as well as hosting fees and the like. My experts have been generous with their time and knowledge as favors to me, but I would like in this new year to be able to pay them for their time and knowledge. There are so many ways to support this podcast that comes to you for free. The simplest way is for you to share it with someone else that you think would enjoy it. That's pretty easy. If you're feeling slightly more giving, you can leave a review or a rating on any of the many platforms that Yarn Stories is now listed on, or donate a bit via the PayPal button at the bottom of every page at yarnstoriespodcast.com. My heartfelt thanks in advance for anything that you can do. This podcast was produced in Salt Lake City, Utah, with production help from Sid Fallon. Music is by the ever-elusive Breakmaster Cylinder. I'll be back in two weeks with Kim McBrien-Evans of Indigo Dragonfly. Indigo Dragonfly.